If you remain standing and have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. John chapter 2, 13 through 22. Hear now God's holy word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's so good to be back in the Gospel of John as we took a little hiatus over the Christmas break and the new year, um, and this is a very interesting passage and a careful passage that we need to handle uh, um, carefully um, because we need to make a note that this is really describing what Jesus is doing. This is not pres- prescribing uh, to us something to follow as a command, but describing what Jesus did and said. And the reformer John Calvin says this physical temple is not replaced today then by this sanctuary or a church building and so forth. So we need to be wary of misinterpretations, uh, even as I'll discuss later, about Jesus's show of righteous indignation and anger. Well, as I remember as a kid growing up at a Korean church in Virginia, we would have this big event annually this once-a-year thing called the Church Bazaar. And why we called it that way, I have no idea. But the term bazaar is originally taken from the Middle Eastern marketplace. You can just imagine rows and rows of stalls where people were selling goods. But for this church, the annual bazaar was simply a fundraiser, and they just filled the parking lot, and so many people would come you would bring some goods to sell or some food or old items and new items, all this to uh, bring for charity or to fix the roof on the church and so forth. But even as a kid, I'm not so sure why, but I felt weird watching this unfold because it was so chaotic and buying and buying and bartering and selling and selling over and over again. And as a kid, it it made me feel uncomfortable because I was literally in the parking lot of the church. Now, I had no idea why that was unsettling to me at that time. And I certainly don't think it's wrong for churches to sell cupcakes and so forth or missions or some ministry support or when we have the Christian booksellers sell us great resources. But nonetheless, at a church bazaar, I felt a bit unsettled. Well, magnify that feeling magnify that image and, ex- and experience by a gazillion and we'll start to see something far more alarming in today's passage in John chapter 2. So look at your Bibles again in verse 13 through 14, John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus, all the way back in December, several weeks ago, when we just finished from early passage at 1 through 12 in chapter 2, he was off the heels of the wedding at Cana, where that miraculous first sign of turning water into wine took place. He is now at the epicenter of the whole region, Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there are three main feasts, and it kind of goes over that in, I think, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 16, 16, that God commanded that all males were instructed every year to travel to Jerusalem, make a pilgrimage, and participate in three main feasts. They, they were festivals and very, very important on the Jewish calendar. The three required feasts that they needed to participate in was the Feast of Passover, or tightly tied to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second was the Feast of Weeks, but then it changed the name in the New Testament era to the Feast of Pentecost. And then um, the, finally, it's the Feast of Booths. One theologian summarizes this as well. He says, commemorating, this is why they would go, commemorating the Lord's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, then commemorating his provision for them through the wilderness, and finally, uh, the, the Feast of Booths, his goodness to them in the land of promise. All of them required some type of offering, though. You couldn't come empty-handed, even says in the scriptures. And so that's good context for how this maybe then changed and evolved and morphed into this chaos inside of the temple because you were not supposed to come empty-handed. Now, the New Testament Gospels are good at showing that Jesus plays the role continually in these Gospels of the great inspector. In the Synoptic Gospels, we read that he inspects the religious representatives coming from Jerusalem. Or if you might remember the passage in Mark, and inspecting, the inspecting Jesus, he inspected the fig tree, symbolizing unbelieving Israel, looking for any fruit in the fig tree and finding none and comparing that to unbelieving Israel. Or inspecting how his disciples were doing and their shared lack of faith and misaligned expectation of who Jesus was supposed to be and why he came. And then finally, you know, of course, we come to today's passage where he plays the great inspector of the highly important temple of our God, what he calls in other passages his father's house, what he says also today. And before we get to the end of today's sermon with some applications and summaries and things like that, we can expect and understand that Jesus not only inspected with great precision and holiness things found 2,000 years ago or so, but he also is doing the same for his church today. He is inspecting. We can even see that in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, Jesus admonishing and rebuking, inspecting his church with utter precision because why? He loves his church. He actually laid down his life for the church. And so whatever we see here in today's passage, we are hopefully reminded that we also need to heed these warnings and rebukes for our own context and our own hearts as the people of God. Now, what was happening in this scene can seem pretty chaotic with a lot of moving parts and a lot of contextual explanation needed especially because perhaps many of us are unaware of what happened in the temple daily, in their festivals also, in its courts with ancient Israel. We know that the first temple 
The temple Solomon was instructed to build and did, and his father David had this dream and this vision to build this temple, but he wasn't allowed to build the temple, but his son Solomon was. That first temple was destroyed well before this time when Jesus is coming to this temple. It was destroyed before the Babylonian captivity. But then a second temple, the temple we see here today, was being rebuilt. Historically, it was called Herod the Great's Temple. This large rebuilding of the temple wouldn't be completed maybe even decades later until about 65 AD, historians say. And as some of you are aware, eventually that temple, this second temple, is then also physically destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. Now, I think most of us know about what happens in the inner courts of the temple, the holy place, the most holy place, where the one high chief priest would go once a year to offer uh, in the Day of Atonement a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of himself and the people. Most of us are aware uh, about a lot of those passages and description. But what happened in the outer courts? And if you get a hold of a good map and a good study Bible or a depiction of the temple, you'd see some areas where people would go to worship and pray, some, some areas where priests would make sacrifices, some areas where Israelite women would go to worship, and so forth and so on. But here today, Jesus is entering what is called the Gentile court. The areas, this area, though, started to morph, unfortunately, from a place of worship and prayer for Gentiles to then a marketplace setting where people would buy qualified animals to be sacrificed for sin and for Thanksgiving offerings, some of those animals listed today in today's passage. But not only that, they had money changers also. And you might say, well, I'm not too familiar with that context. Well, what is that about? When you come to the temple and you give a temple tax, you wouldn't be allowed to use anything with Caesar's impression because the Jews would consider that idolatry. So they would have to be traded in for a different currency. And then on top of that... You usually had many people coming from all other nations and regions to make sacrifices and offerings. And so for the foreign exchange, they, they, there would be money changes that were needed. And understandably, a lot of busyness with that. And then on top of all of that, well, this is a monumental week. This is a special week. This is Passover, where there's a week-long celebration of the Passover commemorating the liberation and the uh, the exodus of the Israelites from the Egyptians, and God saved them. And so again, all male adult Israelites were required to make this annual privilege and bring, not empty-handed, but offerings, and of course, making sacrifices and giving. Can you imagine the chaos and busyness of that all? You know, I enjoyed one image of a theologian that said it was like combining a huge petting zoo with all the animals and, of course, their smells, Combine that with the taste of Chicago. I'm never going to go to that again, but maybe you've been there where there's parts of it where you can't even physically move. And it's like, do I really need that hot dog? <laughs> Why am I here in scorching heat? And then the theologian says, and then on top of that, the chaos of a stock exchange floor. Bring that all together, and this is what it probably looked like at the temple court during Passover. You probably couldn't hear yourself think at a place that packed. So remember, the temple of Jerusalem was the epicenter. It was the center of their faith and religion. And from this time and place, the temple served as headquarters not just for religious activities, but you could understand it represented far beyond that. Far beyond that it represented political power and influence. All the movers and shakers of Israel were there at this time. 
So as the verse says, pigeons were bought for sacrifice, but also lambs and other animals and other materials for the Passover feast and celebration. So why was Jesus filled with such righteous indignation? This is required of all Israelite male. Aren't they doing what they're supposed to be doing, Jesus? And so this is a very unusual, startling picture. We thought Jesus was the epitome of gentleness and meekness, and he most definitely is. But I think we can all agree that meekness does not equal turning a blind eye to wrongdoing. And so many other moments Jesus rebukes or confronts, but then he usually just moves on. But not in his father's house. Not this time. The zeal, we could even call it the wrath of Jesus, is about to be displayed at such hypocrisy and irreverence right in front of him. But again, why? You always are asking the question, why? Well, two quick reasons. Number one is that these money changers were more like than likely swindling unsuspecting people. From poor people to foreigners, they set the price. And who profited? Not just the money makers, uh, changers, but the chief priest probably profited, presumably King Herod himself. Nobody was stopping them because, hey, business was good. I mean, I was born in Chicago, but my heritage ethnicity is Korean. So, but if I, I haven't been back in maybe 30 years, if I ever visited Seoul, South Korea again, and I had all this money to exchange, and they're like, oh, you have U.S. currency? I said, yeah, and I would have no idea, right, if they were jipping me off and, and, and uh, tricking me with, with you know, their, their bartering skills. And I would just smile and say, oh, I have a nice, you know, Imitation polo shirt, as I mentioned in a previous sermon. But business was good at the temple court. Integrity was lost because of that in these outer courts, when integrity should have been the standard, especially at this place of worship. Truth bearers, even those in the order of Levi, uh, were compromising their integrity. This is supposed to be a place of truth and worship, not money scheming and trickery. The Apostle Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians and applies this to us today, that we could change up the gospel message to be a bit more palatable or to promote things that compromise truth and talk less about Jesus and his perfect work and make this a place of self-reliance, self-help, and self-righteousness and just tell everyone in the the Randall Road corridor that, hey, this is a place where you're going to just feel better about yourself. As Brian was mentioning, New Year's resolutions is going to be heightened and we're just going to make you a better person. Perhaps, yes, more people would come. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we don't do that with the gospel. We don't shortchange it. We don't change it to our preferences. We stick to what is true And so this is not the way of gospel integrity and ministry when we do start compromising the integrity. And sadly, many churches are bamboozling, unsuspecting people, just like if I went to a foreign country and I had no idea we could exchange for their attendance and for their service and give them just a half gospel, a compromised gospel. Well, if we can correlate this to 2,000 years, this is what was happening in the outer courts. The second reason this brought the ire of Jesus, as one scholar points out, was that these animals indeed had to be bought. Money did have to be exchanged. But the point Jesus is making is not in the temple, not in the temple courts. This is a place, there's a place and time to do that elsewhere. Not in the area where Gentiles are trying to pray and worship. Do all of this somewhere else. History tells us that many animals were, were bought on the Mountain of Olives. 
just outside the city walls, perhaps that's where the transaction typically should have happened, or at least right outside the temple courts, but not inside, where it represents something totally different. And some of you might be thinking, why are Gentiles in the courts to begin with? I thought this was just for the Israelites, for the Jews. Wasn't this just for the ethnic Israelites? And the answer is no. Gentiles would come to worship the God of Israel too. And so in the Old Testament, we see many figures ending, you know, end up worshiping the God of Israel. Rahab, the, the Canaanite prostitute, Ruth, the Moabite, the sailors uh, in, in the book of Jonah and on the way to Tarshish who made sacrifices and reverently feared the Lord. Those are just some simple examples that, yes, God extended grace to these people too and to us 2,000 years later. And so inside the, the, the temple boundaries, inner courts or outer courts, there should have been reverence, worship, teaching, godly teaching and truth and prayer, not money swindling, making profits and really stealing from others. This made Jesus indignant. But not a carnal anger like we struggle from, struggle with from time to time on I-90. Not a sinful rage, but a righteous indignation. And so look what happens, verse 15 to 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so I'm sorry to say, if you're thinking this, you don't have the capacity to perfectly display the same righteous indignation that Jesus did right here. This is the Christ that we're talking about. In the 1500s, the great reformer John Calvin makes a point to make this understandable for us that we can't match Jesus' capacity for righteous indignation because we're too sinful. So please don't overturn someone's dinner table or scream at someone and say, well, I'm righteously angry right now. But you might be thinking about this. Well, is this an application point about anger? It's not the main theme, but I know that you're going to continue to think about anger. And again, Calvin talks about anger overall. So this is an aside, but because anger is not the main point, the temple is. But here's what Calvin says about anger, because I realize that we might be consumed with thinking about this. He notes that our indignation should be mainly, quote, poured out against our own faults. And then he says, but with respect to others, we ought not to be angry, not at their persons, but at their faults. Nor ought we to be excited to anger by private offenses, but by zeal for the glory of the Lord. And I'm just going to add as an example of this, if we're not preaching God's word in the church faithfully and to what the scripture says, well, that's something to be angry about. And then he goes on and says, quote, lastly, our anger after a reasonable time ought to be allowed to subside without mixing itself with the violence of carnal passions, close quote. Well, basically, be careful about justifying your anger. There's a proper time and place, but often we'll misuse a passage like this to justify wrongly just showing our temper, our angry disposition that could quickly turn into the abuse of emotions. This is not what is meant to be seen in Jesus' passage here. Again, just an aside, but some context to your thoughts on the overall topic of anger. Because I've heard many, many people quote from this or use as an example to justify just a temper tantrum 
or just wanting to feel and satisfy that deep need to express your anger. But Jesus here does have this righteous indignation. There's no doubt about that. But we're not focusing on the righteous indignation itself, but rather the reasons why Jesus is showing this emotion as he alludes to the temple and about himself. Jesus is cleaning house, essentially. In another gospel, he says that they have turned this into a den of robbers. But notice that Jesus declares that he is the son of God. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He is not asking timidly here, but because this is his father's house, he brings out the whip of cords. I was thinking, should I order one from Amazon and just kind of show you how, I'm, I was like, I'm going to whip myself in the face. It's just not going to, it's not going to go well. But he meant business. Jesus was zealous over his father's house. Oh, friends, we are zealous about so many different things, right? Individually or maybe as a family unit, you might be zealous about this hobby or, or your career or your family or athletics. Jesus was zealous over his father's house. Verse 17, his disciples saw this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is such, a, uh, this is such an important key to this passage. They're quoting, these disciples are quoting from King David in Psalm 69, verse 9, where it says, verse 9, for zeal for your house is consuming. This is King David saying, speaking this. For zeal for your house is consuming, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And I'm going to try to connect the dots here, but this is amazing. King David was so consumed about the right worship of God. He wanted to make a temple for God. And he, would glad, he was saying, this is consuming. I'm going to gladly take any reproach or suffering or persecution from other nations or those around me in my, you know, his kind of close, you know, uh, circle. In order for this to happen, the zeal for God consumed him. And the disciples are rightly recalling this and applying this to the one who has come from the line of King David. But way more than the disciples could ever imagine what lengths Jesus would take in being consumed for the ultimate glory and will of God. Perhaps the disciples were saying, oh, he's just really upset. This is his father. He's going to clean house and, and make it appropriate. No, Jesus goes beyond that. Oh, the zeal was consuming him for the glory of God that he is willing to be destroyed himself. And so what does he do? He symbolically clears out the corrupt money changers and people and all those who are contributing to this atrocity. He's basically saying, don't bother those that have truly come to worship God. Bumping into people left and right who are trying to pray, oh, with your tables and products and whatever else, making a place of worship into a Black Friday mega sale. This was absurd. And so as scholars know, Jesus is not indignant because he wants the physical sacrifices of animal and all that goes on in the physical temple to go on and on. No, he has come to rightfully say, you know, eventually there's going to be a time where these aren't even needed. You're profiting over all these things that God commanded, but you are missing what these sacrifices were pointing to all along. For hundreds and hundreds of years, it's me, he's saying. Oh, the shadow for all these centuries has been pointing to this one moment in history, the Messiah coming out into this darkened world. But this is a holy, set-apart, consecrated place for prayer and worship. 
Uh, one, one theologian notes that prayer in this context means all religious worship, meaning this place is not for cheating people on the weight scales of marketplace transition, but this is a place of true teaching, prayer, meditation on the things of God. Our worship matters to God. So Jesus, the chief inspector of our spiritual state, has come and is, clean, is cleaning out the temple. Brian read this earlier from Malachi 3, 1 through 4. I'm just going to read that first portion again. Behold, I send my messenger, Malachi 3 says, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus has come to refine. He has come to cleanse. He has come to make all things new through him and his finished work. And so part of this prophecy will be fulfilled in fullness when Jesus again returns in all his splendor and glory and will be made perfect. But oh, the purification has commenced of right worship. As the Apostle Peter wrote, we are, as the church, are set apart people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and Jesus is going to continually purify us individually, but yes, corporately. He intends to purify his universal church because we can be preoccupied by what is happening out there in our culture or cultures across the globe, and there's a place for that concern. But the concern we should be most fascinated by is the pruning and purifying Jesus is doing and will do at Westminster Presbyterian Church or the church across the globe, the church invisible. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, for the Jews in Jesus' day, they continually demand signs. Paul recognizes 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jesus says the only sign that he'll grant in the other gospels, he says, is the sign of Jonah, that alluded, that, which meant he was alluding to his death and resurrection, and in three days he would rise again, corresponding to Jonas's three uh, Jonah's three days in the belly of the whale. But that's not the type of sign the Jews wanted from Jesus. Because as we often know, they want verification that Jesus, oh, I've heard about him, May, maybe he's the political Messiah that we need. Maybe he's the political Messiah that we've been waiting for. We don't want a savior. We want someone who's going to save us from the Roman Empire and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and raise up as a nation. And so maybe if he gives us a sign, oh, that will ver verify and validate that he is the Messiah that we want. Not someone who is, maybe they got it later on, who is going to come and die and be raised again on the third day. They don't want any of that. And so he alludes to this. Jesus says, destroy this temple. This is the sign. And in three days I will raise it up. Understanding me, the logic is not computing for those on hand. You can almost feel sympathetic for them to be just, it just doesn't make sense. Even the disciples would have been utterly confused at this. And as our text says, not only, at, not only until after the resurrection of Jesus did things click for them. So understandably, the, this rebuilding of the temple has taken so far 46 years and counting. What, what are you saying in three days? 
You know what Jesus is doing here? He is talking high theology. He is talking about the theological term typology. So if you're taking notes, what is typology? You might be wondering that. Well, David Murray, uh, up north in the Puritan Reform Seminary, has this wonderful summation of what typology is. He says, quote, a type is a real person, event, or thing. A type is a real person, event, or thing that God has ordained as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. Let me say that again. A type is a real person, event, or thing that God has ordained as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. So in the Old Testament, the Exodus is a type. King David is a type. The sacrificial lamb is a type, all pointing to Jesus' person and finished work. But also, a type is the temple. So these are things that God has ordained as a predictive pattern or resemblance. It's not us trying to read in between the lines and, oh, I've come up with 50 more types. No, what the Bible shows us as a true type. And it's also the temple. Jesus is saying here that he is the fulfillment of the true temple. In John's vision about the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verse 22, listen to this, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In that verse alone, we see two types, the temple and the Lamb, fulfilled in Christ alone. This is when the disciples truly believed, verse 22. After the resurrection, they believed because the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus and whatever he spoke, he, it came to pass, including his resurrection after three days. And I can't imagine that experience the disciples had when all these earthly ministry incidents started to click in their minds, maybe a day after the resurrection, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe after the 40 days, and they were just piecing all the, thing, the, the puzzle together, connecting all the dots, of course, by the uh, empowerment of the power of the Holy Spirit to, to convict them to say, this is truly the Son of God. And I'm remembering, you know, Peter, don't you remember when he said that the temple or, or another incident, don't you remember, John? And he fulfilled all that, whatever he said came to pass. And so before we get into some summarizing statements and application, let's go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 13. This is Passover. What would happen during this week of commemoration? They would make their way to Jerusalem. They would feast and eat on, they would eat the killed Passover lamb. And so why does this all correlate to Jesus pointing to the destruction of the temple? Well, scholar Jim Hamilton says, because the crucifixion of Jesus was the climactic visitation of the covenant curses and God's just wrath and sin. Let me try to explain this a little bit. Covenant curses came to Israel and the first temple that was later destroyed. They were exiled from the land, as you read through the Old Testament. And so here, this is so marvelous. Jesus is portraying himself as the one who will be destroyed, for zeal will consume him, that he will go to the finish line. As the one who will be destroyed for the sake of his people, those who trust in his person and finished work, that he'll be the ultimate lamb of God that is being all around them, the sights and the smells, the ultimate lamb of God that will truly atone once and for all for all sins and receive the wrath of God instead of us, the covenant curses that we deserve, landed all 
on our Savior on our behalf. There's so much there in these 10 verses or so. This passage is amazing not because Jesus displayed righteous indignation, but because Jesus was pointing to himself as the true temple that would be crucified and destroyed so that we could be saved and live with him for eternity. This just amazes me, connecting all those dots. This passage is pointing not to a physical space. This passage is not pointing us to money changing and animals or even righteous anger. All that was helpful context, yes. But this passage is pointing us to Christ and his good gospel news. Oh, and what, what do the New Testament writers tell us about the dwelling place of the temple, the spiritual temple? Oh, his precious children. God dwells with us. So church, here are three quick questions for application. Number one is this, and you don't need to write these down. They're rather lengthy questions, but helpful for us to, to digest some of this. Number one is, are you not grateful for this immense privilege and knowledge that Christ is the true temple and dwells among his people? Are you not grateful? We don't have to go to a physical temple in Jerusalem to have access to God. Are we not grateful? Are we not grateful that the curtain is torn, that our access to God is 24-7, that we don't need to make any more animal sacrifices, we don't have to change money anymore? Are we not grateful that Christ made all this possible because of his finished work and his person? Number two, are you aware that Jesus is confronting our hearts to respond to this good news with worship and repentance? Are you aware that Jesus is confronting our hearts to be freed from all that Distraction, all that distract us from worship, he is confronting our hearts. Oh, every church is, is, is tempted by this. We're not immune to the temptations to change worship and repentance and faith and, and promote a different gospel or, or uh, promote programs or ministries above what we're supposed to be all about. I preach Christ crucified. And so it's sort of that great inspector um, image that we talked about earlier, Jesus nudging and prodding our hearts if we are awakened to his amazing grace and gospel. Oh, let's invite him all the time. Jesus, prod and nudge my heart. Am I just going through the routines? Is my motive just so far away from wanting to love you and your people? Is my heart when I drive up to corporate worship just so distant from actually wanting to praise you? So I'll give lip service, but Lord, my heart, I need you to nudge it and prod it. My favorite theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, says Jesus is scrutinizing his temple here in this instance, or any instance when he confronts at the temple. Jesus is scrutinizing his temple, urging repentance before it is too late. He comes seeking spiritual fruit and true worship. Is that what is most noticeable about your life and that of your Christian church, end quote. That's a good application question for all of us, for every church in this world. Well, if we're clinging to the gospel truth of Jesus' words, spiritual fruit and true worship should and will naturally show and flow. But are you clinging to the gospel and his words? And finally, do you believe in what the scripture says about what Jesus spoke and fulfilled in his perfect word. Do you believe in what the scriptures say about what Jesus spoke and fulfilled in his perfect work? That's straight from verse 22. 
The disciples believed. They saw all the confirmation they needed. They connected all the dots from the scriptures of old to what was happening right before their very own eyes. They believed in such a simple application. But like we say here all along, it doesn't matter if you bought a new Bible, a new leather-bound edition, or from Crossway, the, the, the 20th different type of Bible, and for the men's Bible and the women's Bible, or study Bible and this and that. They're all good. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. But you actually have to believe in what is written just like the disciples did. And so if you're contemplating all this as a non-believer, maybe you're new to church, either streaming or here in person, this is an invitation to believe and repent, to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, to throw yourself before the Lord Almighty with empty hands, asking for the gift of faith through grace and for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, all through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples were fearful, we know this. The disciples were weak, scared, but Jesus finally gave them the ability to see, to believe and be saved, and they become devout people of the word, devout people of faith, devout people of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love when one UK older pastor said, oh, it's, it's, it's always healthy to just be enamored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what a healthy believer looks like. That it never gets old. It never gets tired. It's never something that we just want to have spiritual amnesia about and forget. Oh, a healthy Christian always wants to hear and talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we all truly believe, but truly honor God in worship through, oh, our great temple, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who gave his life willingly on the cross and was victoriously raised on the third day. May that be true for all of us here. We pray this and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son to be the fulfillment of the temple uh, and that temple that was destroyed as he was crucified, but you raised that temple up again in three days. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Christ. And so God, help us to be forever grateful. Help us to be so amazed at his loving sacrifice so that we could dwell with him for all eternity. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.